Welcome back to the Pactum Factum podcast, the superpower of everyday negotiation. I'm Lucia Cantor, St. Amour. Negotiation is everywhere, every day. This is the negotiation laboratory where we share insights into basic skills, strategy, history, storytelling, behavioral sciences, and social trends. It's all connected. We are all connected. And everyone can learn how to better negotiate everyday life with keen eyes, hearts, and minds. Thanks for joining us. Are you the sort of person who makes a list before going to the grocery store and sticks to the items on the list while in the store? Do you skip the list altogether, grab some produce and staples like milk and eggs, and then browse the frozen and prepared food sections for weekly dinner ideas? If you're anything like me, you do both. Plan something of a menu for the week and list ingredients for those recipes, but stay open to something that inspires you as you wind the shopping cart from aisle to aisle. Ooh, pomegranate seeds would be fun in our salads this week. This strikes me as a winning combination of planning and flexibility, which translates well to other facets of life. Travel, parenting, group dynamics. It's no different in negotiation. We covered planning in some detail in prior episodes and emphasized its importance. It's common to become emotional, confused, or simply tired while in the throes of negotiating. Having that plan to anchor and refocus you is key. And it's that anchor that provides you the freedom and comfort to be flexible and trust your instincts in the moment. Look, it's easy to infer a mixed message. These days we are bombarded by catchy pseudo-psychology marketing phrases that tell us to have a growth mindset, lean in, do something that scares you every day, get out of your comfort zone which some interpret as skipping the stodgy planning and just going with your gut. I'm saying that the planning stage is what actually allows you to pay attention to your gut instincts in the negotiation and feel confident about them. What I'm really talking about is interoception, which is defined as the internal state of the body, both conscious and unconscious. You might even call it your spidey sense. Interoception encompasses visceral signaling projected to the brain via neuropathways and typically manifests in the cardiovascular, respiratory, and gastrointestinal systems. In 2021, New York Times journalist Ezra Klein took a deep dive into this subject matter in an interview with science writer Annie Murphy Paul about her new book, The Extended Mind. He sums up the conceit of the book as about, quote, recognizing that we have the intuitive metaphor of our minds, an analytical machine, a computer of sorts, and we've taken this broken metaphor of the mind and then built schools and workplaces and society on top of it, built the environment on top of it. And the result is that our work and school lives are littered with these productivity paradoxes. It has radical implications, not just for how we think about ourselves, but for policy, for architecture, for our social lives, for schooling, for the economy." 
In his interview with Paul, they discussed the problem with the long-standing and all-too-dominant analogy of our brain as a computer, when actually it is a living organism that has evolved over time in many contexts, and mostly outdoors, and must be understood on its own terms. Cognitive processing is just part of the information our brains supply us, while much more quote-unquote thinking is emanating from within the body and unconsciously. They talked about a study by psychologist Antonio Damasio, which monitored the body receiving some of these unconscious processes in a pattern recognition card game that was actually fixed, and how, at some point along the way, the study participants sensed which deck was bad and instinctively stopped drawing from it. Other studies of Wall Street traders identified those who seem to make more money when they are more interoceptively attuned, that is, better at reading their own body signals. When our nervous system is aroused, it's feeding us information. Ignoring these sensations as simply fear or anxiety or inconsistent with leaning in or a growth mindset is no different than dismissing evidence consciously driven by the executive functioning of the brain. So don't dismiss it. Here at Pactum Factum, I have long cautioned against hailing rational analysis as the best or only method of making decisions or engaging with others in negotiation, in conflict, or in the vagaries of everyday interactions. Those who can harness the powers of the mind and the body and reference them at appropriate moments, well, they are next-level everyday superheroes. And that can be you. If you know you've prepared well for a negotiation, despite all the multi-layered dynamics tumbling toward you during that negotiation, enjoy the confidence of your preparation and trust your interoception. At the very least, hit the pause button to allow yourself time to reflect. In very few circumstances do you need to be rushed into a decision. Urgency is commonly manufactured as a pressure tactic. You don't, you don't need to fall for it. How many times have you been casually browsing for an item online and you come upon a website where, coincidentally, everything is 20% off until the end of that day? Oh, how lucky you happened across this website at this serendipitous moment in time. You had just been casually looking, but now you'd better go ahead and complete the purchase before that deal ends. You have likely been drawn into a classic sales ploy of creating scarcity of time. Act now. This offer won't last. Well, maybe and maybe not. If that coupon does indeed vanish tomorrow, another will probably appear soon enough. I can personally vouch for the interoception experience in negotiation. In my career, I've done thousands of depositions, and I don't know how many negotiations and mediations. For every deposition over the span of many years, I kept a log of the attorney on the other side, their name, the date, and a little dossier, their overall personality, their level of preparedness, their questioning style. Was it clear and organized or confusing and compound? If the latter, did it seem intentional? to disorient the witness, or just a lack of skill. Were they kind to the witness? Being deposed is not fun. To the court reporter, 
to the interpreter? Did they try to sneak in prohibited questions to test me and whether I was paying attention? I was. Did they make small talk? What was going on in their life? If someone was expecting their second baby or buying a new car or moving their parents into an assisted living facility, I'd make a note of it. It was a small world, so we'd likely run into each other again. And then I could say, hey, your youngest was about to start kindergarten last time we were together. How did that transition go? Not only did this make them feel good because I was treating them like a human being, it benefited my own client that I had built rapport with them. All of this, of course, also helped me prepare my client. I could warn them about someone or put their mind at ease that it was going to be a pleasant and efficient process that afternoon. Oftentimes, the trust I had cultivated would even lead to a negotiation and settlement of the case right there at the deposition. And I was transparent about all of it. They might say, wow, Lucia, you have a good memory. And I would admit, oh, not really. I keep a log. Want to hear what I wrote about you? <laughs> and I'd actually read to them what I wrote about them. Here's the thing. The fact that I kept a log did not mean my curiosity about their lives and my bonding wasn't genuine. It very much was. I happen to know that some of them are even listening to this podcast. Why am I telling you about this dossier and what does it have to do with interoception? I had a thousand names plus on that log. I certainly didn't remember everyone over all the years with my conscious mind. Before any deposition, I'd look at what opposing attorney's name appeared on the notice of deposition, and even if I didn't consciously recognize the name, my body would react. I'd feel maybe a sense of contentment wash over me and not know exactly why, or I'd feel a pit forming in my stomach and wonder, hmm, what's that about? Then I'd open up my log and look up the name, read the notes on that person and go, ah, that explains the feeling of dread. It's not going to be an easy day. My body remembered. This was before I had even heard the word interoception, and it fascinated me. I actually thought it was special to experience these sensations, like endowed with extrasensory gifts. Maybe I am, but I know now that anyone can tap into this information. I'm going to close out this episode with a bedtime story. I promised we'd discuss art, literature, culture, music, history, and how it all relates to you honing your negotiation skills as an everyday superpower. A show of hands, how many of you have read and or read to your children Margaret Wise Brown's famous children's book, Goodnight Moon? In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. I thought so. Turns out, Margaret Wise Brown was way ahead of her time in understanding interoception. Goodnight Moon did not first appear on a public library shelf until 1972, about 25 years after it was first published. Why? Well, she was a prolific children's author at a time when the expected format of children's literature was to conform to a structured story arc with a morality message that or a fantastical fairy tale. 
With Goodnight Moon, Brown soundly rejected this structure and adopted an altogether radical approach. Now, she was fortunate enough to fall in with a dedicated group of avant-garde experimental writers in New York at the time who would audition their draft stories with groups of children. Employing some unconventional brainstorming techniques, and we've talked about brainstorming, haven't we? She observed that young children connected with an experience that engaged the senses, and that included objects and characters they could relate to, not fantasy. This came in a later phase of childhood. And they didn't care about plot. So small animals, a bunny, a mouse, everyday objects, a comb, a brush, a lamp. These familiar objects and animals combined with the flat, saturated, primary-hued, Matisse-like illustrations of Clement Hurd and a studied focus on the sound of the rhythmic, repetitive, almost hypnotic words. And the little toy house. And the young mouse. And a comb. And a brush. And a bowl full of mush all contributed to an experience that felt just plain good in children's bodies. It felt comforting, safe, like a cozy, cozy blankie. And it was absolutely radical at the time. You might even say seductive. What does this have to do with negotiation or your life? Well, as I've preached before, it's all connected. We are all connected. You may be necessarily focused on the negotiations unfolding in your everyday life. At the same time, throughout the centuries and continuing now, people are engaged in broader negotiations with society, challenging the status quo, asking, does this framework still work? Is there some other approach? Margaret Wise Brown defied many societal rules and expectations as an individual, as a woman, and certainly norms in the publishing business in the 1930s through 1950s. Author of over a hundred manuscripts of children's stories, she typically worked on each for a couple of years while researching and testing language on children before she considered them complete. Ah, interoception meets planning. The different schools of thought surrounding the appropriate content of children's literature was a standoff that lasted decades. Hard to imagine, now that we accept and cherish Goodnight Moon, translated into at least a dozen languages, as a mainstay of a child's bookshelf. So, as I draw this episode to a close, I encourage you to sharpen your everyday negotiating superpower through planning, tuning into your spidey sense, and gazing beyond your own backyard to the larger negotiations we are witnessing right now as society evolves. It's actually terribly exciting. And if all that stimulation makes it hard to fall asleep, I can recommend a good bedtime story. Thanks for listening, or even partially listening while you multitask. You never know what might stick with you. Keep your ear out for this space, because we sure do appreciate your company. I'm Lucia Cantor St. Amour of Pactum Factum, which is Latin for a done deal. You can find me here on Substack and on pactumfactum.com. <laughs>